Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, another week to gather together as your brothers and sisters in Christ that you've brought together and as your little flock. And we gather in your name, depending on your grace, for everything that we need. And Lord, we also pray for the flock that's scattered around the world. Every week I hear from more who cannot find fellowship. So we, if they listen in on this, we include them, we pray for them, and may they feel the same sense of oneness in the gospel that we do, that they may know that they're loved and they're part of the body of Christ. And may our hearts and minds be uh, attuned to the teachings of your word this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we did verse 2 last week about the day of salvation. So today, 2 Corinthians 6, 3, it says, Giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in affliction, and hardship. Actually, what I'm going to do is let's just let me kind of read a big a section of Paul's defense here, and then we'll start back at verse 3. But in everything, verse 4, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul has an aversion to periods. (laughs) Did you notice that, Dick? He needed you. Run out of breath before you get to the end of the sentence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's about like Jonathan Edwards sometimes. He writes that way. Okay. But all of these things are descriptive of both Paul's character qualities, his actions, and his experiences at the hands of others, how he's treated, how he's received. And Paul is very transparent about his own ministry. I was just looking this up because I was doing my applications for the sermon the other day. And I was remembering a passage where the Lord told Paul to continue on because the Lord had many people in this city. So I looked it up and found the passage, and it turned out that the city was Corinth. And in Acts... Before he went to Corinth, he'd been really badly treated. Uh, in Thessalonica, remember, he was, he was uh, run out of town by rioters that hated the gospel. He went to Berea where he was received, and then the people from Thessalonica came there to chase him out of Berea. And he went to Athens, preached the gospel to the Athenian philosophers, and they mocked him. Okay, And then he went to Corinth. And, and he said in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 that he came in fear and trembling. 
because he'd been so badly rejected wherever he'd been, and he went to Corinth, and he was actually considering getting out of there right away as well. But that's when the Lord appeared to him. The Lord himself appeared to Paul and told him to stay in Corinth because the Lord said, I have many people here. So they're conceived of being God's people before they're even converted. Now, he did. He obeyed the Lord. He stayed there, and more people were converted. And so he has a history with this church. He spent time there, and and they were dear to him. And so he put so much effort into trying to save this wayward church. You know, there was 1 Corinthians, and then there was this non-extant, sorrowful letter that he had sent them, hoping for some kind of a better response. And throughout 2 Corinthians, you see the conflict. You can read behind the scenes because there's always these accusations. But he was willing to put up with so much for this church in Corinth. He, he, anybody else you would think would have just washed his hands of the thing and said, all right, go listen to the super apostles, I'll go somewhere else. But he wouldn't do it. He, he wanted to preserve them. So that's why we have this, so much of this uh, credentials type material, Paul's credentials, verses 3 through 10. So let's go back to verse 3. Giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. Because they were working overtime to discredit Paul's ministry as it was. And if he gave any offense, it would, it would be nearly impossible to defend it. And the word offense is a different one in the Greek than, than is typical. And it's only really used here. But it probably means failings in Paul that would hinder his ministry of reconciliation. And in the Greek, there's a double negative here, giving no cause for offense. Literally says, no one in nothing. No one in nothing. Now, that's not very good English, is it? So that's why it's not translated that in the, in the English Bible. But that's literally what it says, the double negative, no one in nothing. So not, not a single person, what it means is no offense to a single person. No offense in a single thing. That's what he's saying. Everything has to be done above board appropriately so that there's no offense. Now, this is important, and it's important to this very day. And the reason I believe it's doubly important is that when the true gospel is preached according to the terms of the new covenant without any... um, equivocation, it's offensive in its native condition. There is so much that's offensive about it, just the way it is. And telling people that God has wrath against sin is telling them what in their own natural state they cannot believe. Have you, do you know that? The people don't believe that? People don't conceive of God, at least especially here in America. They're not thinking that God is angry. Because all they've heard is God loves you. They see it on bumper stickers and they hear it this way and they hear it that way. And as Keith Keith wrote a little article about that for Christian Worldview Network, that if you just say God loves you without saying anything else, you are harming people. 
because that is saying everything's fine. Well, if God loves me, then certainly everything will be okay. How could I, why would a loving God at the end of the age judge me? I, I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just living my own life and pulling, you know, like in the C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there's this guy who's complaining about being judged because when he was here on earth, he had bought all his own drinks. <laughs> well, there you go. Outstanding citizen. <laughs> um, and so here it's an offense, and that's what it says in First Corinthians 1. So when Christians add offense, that are, they're needless offense, it's a bad thing. When you read in the paper about the, the church treasurer embezzled someone else's money from the church, which it seems like every week you read a story like that. Okay? And you read about uh, uh, pastors who were molesting children and, and church leaders that did this and church leaders that did that. It gives everybody reason to mock the gospel and not take it seriously. And then the other problem is we have changing the gospel to remove the offense, and Paul wouldn't do that. So the, probably the most concentrated teaching about this would be at 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, where Paul defends the gospel and points out to them that the Greeks are looking for, for wisdom and the Jews are looking for signs, but we preach Christ crucified. And that is the message that God will use to save the lost. And so may God give us grace to avoid offense, avoid bad motives, avoid mistreating people. There's no reason for Christians to mistreat one another, to, to, to be in the ministry for some wrong motive is, is really not a good thing at all. It's, it has to be avoided at all costs because it will bring offense and it will cause the ministry to be discredited. Okay, I have uh, some verses. Let's start with Dick. Are you ready to go? Matthew 18 and verse 6 and Joanne. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, and Alice, 2 Corinthians 1, 12, and Troy, 2 Corinthians 8, 19 to 21. And then I have a citation. Okay, um, Matthew 18 and verse 6. But whoever, are you there? Okay, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's bad. <laughs> now, it, it's really bad if you think of the Jewish understanding of things. And I've mentioned this before, but what did the Jews think about the sea? They were afraid of it. It's, it's something that we have to learn because Americans don't think that way. If we see the, we think the sea is really good, and anywhere you can have a view of it, you see people building their houses, and you see people taking trips to go there, or you see people going on cruise ships. But the Jews, and this is universally Old Testament and New, the sea is a bad thing. Okay. And in the Jewish mind, the sea is where you go and die. 
It, well, just look at the narratives. Look at Jonah. He ends up in the sea. That's not where you want to go. Um, and as I pointed out before, in Revelation, it says the sea will give up its dead. Now, why would it specify, when it's talking about resurrection, why would it specify that the sea gives up the dead? Because the Jews were very concerned about the proper burial of the body, and they believed that that had something to do with the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection, unless they were Sadducees. How many have been to Israel? Well, one of the things I found interesting is when in Israel, in, there were several places I really loved. All, all of Israel is a wonderful place to go. But on the Mount of Olives at Gethsemane, and you're looking across the Kidron Valley to the Eastern Gate, there's graves. There are graves and graves and graves and graves, just thousands of graves. And our tour guide, I went in 83, said that wealthy Jews over the centuries have bought plots there because they think that's the best place to be for the resurrection because of some of the promises in the Bible. And so there, they would literally have a fear that if you went out and drowned in the sea, that might harm you at the resurrection because the sea is not a proper burial. You don't want to be in the bottom of the sea ate up by some fishes or something. Now, so Revelation says the sea gives up its dead. What that would mean to the Jewish person is that there is nothing that could have happened to me in my death that would keep me from the resurrection, even going into the sea. Now, the reason I pointed out is that's why Jesus used that language. If you offend one of these little ones, you would be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Why would that be so bad? Well, of course, you don't want to die. But the reason it's doubly bad is because you're going to end up in the bottom of the sea and stay there. And you will not get a proper burial. In the Middle East, some, some, many people are more afraid about what happens to them after they die as far as how the body's taken care of. Because they're so worried about the desecration of the body or an improper burial. It's very, very important to them. Yes, uh, Robert, over here. Uh, also in Revelations 8, there's the imagery of the harlot comes uh, out of this. Babylon and the millstone in the sea. And it also says that Babylon leads all the nations astray. Yep. So it's the same. And there's a, same isn't there a theme. beast that comes up out of the sea in yeah, Revelation? The, yeah, the, 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 uh, the Antichrist. Yeah. So... Um, so in the Jewish mind, the sea isn't like Miami Beach to us. Okay, it's 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 where all the evil and bad comes from, and it's, it's where you don't want to go. And I literally know in '83. I don't know what it's like now, but in '83 when I visited, the thing that shocked me about Israel was there was all this sea right along the Mediterranean that wasn't all developed right up to the edge. Now, I don't know. It may have changed. It may have changed. But in '83. The, the buildings were way back from the sea. Not, but in America, they, they built so far out in the sea, some people are actually in the sea with their house. And then when it blows down, they want the government to give them $2 million to, to build it back up again. That's American, Soria. Oh, poor me, my $3 million house blew away that I built out in the sea. 
You don't see a Jew build their house off in the sea like that, at least in Israel. Let me quote this, and then we'll go on our, our cross-references. The defensive note struck here reflects a number of criticisms of Paul. This is a Barnett, I believe, by the Corinthians. The most important, the moral, he does not accept. Rather than in the realm of vacillation and travel arrangements, one twelve through two four. Remember, he said yes and yes and no and no. They, they because he thought he was going to go to Corinth and never made it. They accused him of vacillation, or of craftiness in money-related matters. Four two seven two twelve sixteen through eighteen. So he rejects those. Those things aren't true. Another area of criticism apparently was in regard to inadequacies in gift of verbal ministry which Paul does not deny and indeed accepts, 10.10 and 11.6. They said he wasn't very articulate. Now think about the power of the gospel. Can you imagine that one of the most powerful preachers in history wasn't very good at words, wasn't articulate? If it was true. They, told, they said, well, here, somebody look it up. Uh, Robert, do you want to look up uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10.10? 10? And so Paul does, he says, okay, I'm not a silver-tongued orator like the uh, Greek sophists that you guys admire. Second Corinthians 10.10. 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. His speech was contemptible. He didn't deny it. Um, isn't that amazing? Because they were comparing him to the sophists that, that had degrees in rhetoric. And, and uh, they, they were admiring wisdom. Uh, you know, we, by the way, we sent out our CIC article, and it's about Velvet Elvis. Okay. And I'm finally getting to the bottom of all of this, of where this doctrine comes from. All right, and it comes from um, uh, some really esoteric philosophical uh, theories that are out there. But I watched a video. I, I, I got a point. There's a reason for this. I'm not actually going off the subject. It just looks like it. <laughs> I watched this video. Everything is spiritual. And... In the cover here is the whiteboard. It starts out in the video, it starts out empty, and Rob Bell fills it. And he starts in Genesis, and he goes all the way through here, and then he goes down into the subatomic physics, um, the stuff that's not even proven to be true. And then he go, has this thing here. Turns out, I found out where that's from. I, I revealed it out in you know, L.A. That comes from Ken Wilbur, the same symbol who's a Buddhist. And then it's just absolutely amazing. This Rob Bell is one of the finest communicators I have ever seen of late. He is more winsome, more articulate, enthusiastic, engaging, uses the greatest techniques, and he fills auditoriums going out giving this lecture. And he's entirely deceived. And it's so deceptive because it's so well packaged. And um, it took me a long time to get to the bottom of where it came from and what was wrong with it. And that's just what I do. 
okay, I, I've got a theological education, and I'm not the most educated, but I'm, I work hard at it, and I keep self-educating. And I, I've been critiquing theology for over 20 years. And it took me a lot of work to get to the bottom of where this was coming from. It's so well packaged. So the point is you can't judge a teaching based on the eloquence of the teacher. And I'm not just doing that for an excuse. <laughs> okay. All right. Whatever. Oh, by the way, so here's the eloquent speaker. If someone would want a volunteer who would be good at this, what I need in order to finish my book, I have a chapter and a third left to write. I need a person to make a transcript of this, a written transcript of everything is spiritual. So talk to me after Sunday school if you'd be interested in volunteering of creating a transcript of, of this entire DVD because I think it reveals the philosophy behind the emergent church. But it would be a lot easier to quote. Okay, try He's actually doing the opposite of what Paul is saying. He's putting a stumbling block before the little ones, the believers. Well, but he doesn't believe that he is because I think that he does believe that his philosophy is true. But it's a stumbling block for believers to think, uh, see, everything is spiritual, even the title. It's, 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 uh, it's basically a way of bringing an Eastern monism into Christianity. It's, it's, uh, it's called panentheism. It's not exactly monism. It's panentheism. God is in everything. So everything is infused with God, and therefore the whole creation is still developing and, and evolving into something better. That's, that's the basic point. Yes. I thought uh, the notes here on Second um, Corinthians 10.10 was good here. It says, Paul did not depend on the kind of trained oratory prized by the world and designed to get glory for the speaker. Those influenced by the, op- uh, by the opponents, which probably is these super apostles, uh-huh. attacked Paul's ministry by saying he lacked this skill. Okay. Now, shouldn't it be encouraging to us if Paul wasn't very eloquent and God used him to turn the world upside down, he might be able to use us because <laughs> the power is in the gospel. Do you believe that? The power is in the gospel. It's just the truth of the gospel. And it's powerful wherever it is. Did anybody see Norma Levang's obituary in the Star and Trib? Wow. Unbelievable. Have you ever seen that before? Diane showed it to me. Have you ever seen that? A little obituary, and the gospel was in there. (laughs) The gospel was in the obituary. Amazing. And the the funeral we had here on Tuesday was was also very interesting. There were all these, you know, very, I, I don't know how many really elderly people, but there were a lot of them. And I was meeting people that, uh, I met the daughter of one of my uh, seminary professors. I met the, the father of one of my fellow seminary students that was my age, who's a pastor out in Tennessee. And uh, there were all these people, but the, 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 the glor- God was glorified in that funeral. God was glorified both by the life that he had uh, given grace t- for, to Norma to live, by her family and the influence God had made in their lives and by what was said there and by the scriptures and so on and and by the gospel. So it's a life that's lived for Christ 
is a beautiful thing. Okay, now we had 1 Corinthians 10, 32, and 33. That would be Joe. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Give no offense to Jew nor Greek nor the church of God. It's interesting he has three categories there. Give no offense to Jew nor Greek nor the church of God. The only offense that's required is the offense of the gospel. That we cannot back away from. We can't change it. We can't mute it. We can't try to hide it. It offends people. But it's the truth. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1, 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Okay, that's Paul's testimony, that not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, he conducted himself in a godly manner. 2 Corinthians 8, 19, and 21. This is about money. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Okay, so he made sure the money was handled properly and accounted for properly so that there would be no dishonor brought to the gospel. I was reading Barnett when we talked about Paul's accusation of inadequacy in verbal ministry. And then he, then he went on and said, A third which we infer from this and other tribulation lists, 4, 7 through 12, 11, 23 through 12, 10, was in relationship to his sufferings and setbacks, which were seen as evidence of his inadequacies in ministry. This too Paul accepts and indeed perhaps elaborates further as in this and other such lists within the letter. Paul's great concern was that the ministry, the apostolic ministry, as in 520, would not be discredited as it would be if he was, in fact, guilty of moral failure, which he here denies. So Paul does not want the ministry to be discredited. In verse 4 it says, But in everything, commending ourselves... As servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. Now he has several triads here, and and end up with uh, nine examples in the verse four and five. You have afflictions, hardship, distresses. There's three beatings, imprisonments, tumults, three more labors, sleeplessness, and hunger, three more. And these all are um, difficulties, mistreatments, hardships that are related directly to the ministry. And Paul is just, it's just amazing what God did through him. He, he's converted in Acts 9, and he was so ferocious against the church that Ananias had to, the Lord had to tell Ananias that he was safe. He, well, why would I want to pray for him? He's trying to kill us. That's what Ananias was thinking. And Paul said, no, no, he's one of mine. Or the Lord said, he's one of mine. Pray for him. 
And then Paul went out and began to testify about the gospel immediately. He testified about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at this list a little bit here. Commending ourselves as servants of God. The word servants, diakonoi, where we get our English word deacon. And he served in endurance, afflictions. He endured in all these things, afflictions, hardship, and distresses. So these are generic tribulations. The word afflictions can be literally translated pressures, being under extreme pressure. Hardships have to do with things lacking necessities. And the word for distresses means constraints, trapped by circumstances over which he had no control. And he serves as an example, I believe, for all of us in his ability or willingness to persevere in these things. The, the hardest things that you go through in life are things that, uh, let me explain it this way. Have you ever been in a situation that was really bad and there was not a single decision you could make that would change it? Think about it, right? It's really bad and there's not a single decision I can make that's going to make it any different. That's pressure. I've been in that situation more than once. And it's the thing that really aggravates us the most and, and, and can get us anxious and get us down because, especially for Americans, we're, we're trained that there's always an answer, there's always a solution, and there's a technological solution or something. There's got to be some way out of every problem. But sometimes problems and pressures and afflictions will come into your life that you can't just make some decision and change something you're doing or buy something or anything that's going to make it go away. And when you get in that, that's what Paul's talking about. Hardships and distresses, constraints, trapped by circumstances over which he had no control. But what he does is he endures. In other words, the one non-negotiable, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how afflicted you are, no matter how difficult it is, the one non-negotiable is our faith in Christ and our proclamation of the gospel. That is the bottom line. And that's, I think I, think I may, I was looking this up. Did I put it in one of my cross-references? Let me hand out some while I'm trying to find what I'm thinking about here. Um, uh, Laura... Acts 20, 23, and 24. And, and Tom, could you do Acts 20, 34? So we got Acts 20, 23, and 24. Acts 20, 34. And Zeke, Romans 5, 3, and 4. Gail, Romans 8, 35, and 36. Um, I can't see your name, Ty. <laughs> Robin, sorry. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 11, and 12. And Mike, 2 Corinthians 12, 10. So uh, when Laura finds that, she can go ahead and read it, because I'm going to look at a little, find a little story in Acts that I find instructive. <laughs> that wasn't, yeah. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, 
if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he said, I don't consider my life as dear to myself. If only I can finish my ministry. It's an amazing attitude. So uh, the next passage was Acts 20 and verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Okay. So he worked hard. He, he worked. Actually, one of the hardships had to do with the fact that he had this tent maker. So he probably had to do that. I mean, he was working day and night between the gospel and trying to provide for himself so that he could provide the gospel for free. And to the Corinthians, by the way, whom he loved, he poured his heart out to, he did not dare take any support from them because they were so um, carly minded if I can say it that way, that they'd think he was just doing it for the money. So to prove that he wasn't doing it for the money, even though he said the ministry has a right to live off the gospel, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain, he demurred and did not receive the money from them So, because otherwise they'd find that as some reason to assume he has bad motives. And so he labored in hardship day and night in order to provide for himself so that he would not be a burden to the churches. Romans 5, 3, and 4. And not only this, we also, but we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Hmm. Wow. So God is using these things to cause us to grow. Romans eight thirty-five and 36. Just, it is, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things... We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Okay. 1 Corinthians 4, 11, and 12. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated as we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Okay. <laughs> Oh, where'd Robert go? Yeah, see if you can boost that without feedback. Okay. Uh, next one is what? Two Corinthians twelve ten, right? Yes. Okay. Therefore, I take pleasure go. in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. I'm quoting here from Garland who says this. He is saying to the Corinthians, this is the way I commend myself to others in the world. This is the way you should commend me to others. He may also be saying that this is what you as Christians should emulate to make sure that you do not receive God's grace in vain. God did not call them to be bystanders applauding the dedicated sacrificial service of God's servant. They are called to serve as well. Paul's service for God brings much hardship. He's not landed a soft assignment as Christ's ambassador. 
The ministry of reconciliation requires that one must go to those who are unreconciled and impenitent to claim those claimed by Satan to march boldly into the dens of vice, ignorance, and deviltry. It is a dangerous work, as Christ's crucifixion reveals. The demonic powers do not lie down weakly in submission when the gospel is preached, but they rise out and lash out viciously in a desperate attempt to prevent it from taking hold. So there always has been a battle going on, and the battle is concerns the gospel itself. And the best way, I mean, not the best way, the most perverse way that a Christian could get rid of all of these problems is to either not preach the gospel or change the terms of the gospel so that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you do that, if you change the terms, you can be a Christian and be popular with the world and be loved by the world if you change the terms. But if you refuse to change the terms, you will at least be ridiculed. Okay? And so that's why I so admire people who won't change the terms of the gospel. And you notice somebody, somebody for example, like John MacArthur, they'll, every once in a while they'll have him on Larry King Live. And the reason they do is they can count on him to make everybody mad. I mean, they know what he's going to say, but they want to have a token fundamentalist on there. And so they have a Buddhist and a, this kind of Christian and this kind of other religion, and they're all saying, well, do you think that sincere Muslims are going to go to hell? And they ask MacArthur, he says, if they don't repent and believe the gospel, yes, they shall go to hell. What? You can't say that. And then that's why they asked MacArthur, because they know he'd say that, and they wanted, to, they wanted to see what these Christians believe. See what these Christians believe? Well, it's not an easy thing to say, but it is what the Bible would lead us to believe. Someone um, emailed me, well, it's really a, kind of an invictive, nasty email, saying basically that if God is sovereignly in control of his own universe, then he's a horrid, wicked God who delights to send people up to hell. And it was going on and on and on like that. Really kind of strong stuff, and it, it grieved me to see it. And it was from a Christian. And I emailed him back, and I said, your words are not seasoned with salt. And you better be careful what you say about God, because it could be that the God you're railing against is exactly how he's described in the Bible. And so then he, then he was a little nicer and said, well, okay, I, I, I see what you're saying, and thanks for being nice. I'm just struggling with this. And so then I tried to help him understand the Bible. But we have to, as Christians, accept whatever the Bible does say about God and, and us and the world we live in and the terms of the gospel. And even in some of the difficult things, I, I admit some things are more difficult than others. The one this guy was struggling with is the problem of evil. How can a holy, loving God allow all the suffering and evil? Well, that's a, that's a theological problem, an issue that goes back as long as people have been asking questions. And it, and it goes right back in the Old Testament because they asked the question. The saints in the Old Testament asked God that same question. And so I wrote an article one time about it called 
the Hebrew lament, the Hebrew lament in the problem of evil. So I've been reading some of these theologians trying to solve the problem of evil. In other words, it's called a theodicy is what it's called in theology. Theodicy. And they're saying, well, maybe God's doing his best and this is just what happens. He can't. There's certain things that keep God from solving the problem. Maybe God's lacking power. Maybe God's lacking foreknowledge. There's all these answers. They're trying to get God off the hook for why there's evil in the world. And so I was getting frustrated reading all this because it was philosophical speculation. And I, I got an idea. Did anybody ever ask God this question in the Bible? Yes or no? Well, yes, they did. Did God ever answer? Yes or no? Yes, he did. Well, can't God answer for himself? Did the philosophers have to answer for God? And so I did a little survey of the lament. Lament. You know what a lament is? It's definitely one of the Jewish contributions to world history. <laughs> Very much so. Not that other cultures don't lament. But, oh, it's so bad. And, and so Job lamented how bad everything was. And God came and spoke to Job. Habakkuk is a lament. Habakkuk is the most unique prophet of all because instead of prophesying to others, he's complaining to God and God talks to him. So why is it so bad? Habakkuk says, why is it so bad? And so Habakkuk's complaining to God saying, we have wicked leadership in Israel, God, and you're not doing anything about it. So God says, well, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to destroy Israel. What? <laughs> what kind of answer is that? And then, and then Habakkuk says, the Chaldeans are worse than we are. How can you do this? And so read Habakkuk. And, just the, and the answer is, though the vision wait, tarries, wait for it. But what's the vision other than the vision of the entire Old Testament promise the messianic salvation would come. God is going to come and save Israel, but there's a whole history that has to happen. And so finally in the end, Habakkuk's a righteous Jew, and you know what he says in the end? Though there's no cattle in the stall, and there's, we used to sing that, didn't we? I should remember it. We used to sing it. There's no grapes on the vine and no cattle on the stall, and I must wait for the Lord. I must trust in the Lord. And he accepted God's answer. Now, I have emailed that article I wrote where I just explained how the question was answered in the Old Testament to many people that are like this, that are saying, no, 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 no. I can't accept that God's in charge of his own universe. And I send that article. I said, all I'm doing is telling you what God gave as an answer. And they don't like it. They don't, they don't like it. No, I don't like that answer. Some go over to open theism to find an answer. But did ever God, when somebody says, God, why is there so much evil in the world? When did God ever say, I didn't know it was going to happen? It snuck up on me. So if that's the answer, I want to know why God doesn't give it as the answer. The answer, you know what the answer is in all these cases? I'm God. Are you going to serve me or not? Are you, man, going to set the terms for me, God, or are you going to come to me on my terms and serve me, even if things are not the way you like? 
That's the decision you need to make. You're going to serve God on his terms. Sometimes he answered with questions. To Job, he answered, where were you when I did this and where were you when I did that? And what, Give me an answer to this and give me the answer to that. What's your answer, Job? Job says, I've said enough. I'm shutting my mouth. I repent. <laughs> okay, I can't answer that. So I guess the point is trust God, right? So why do we go through all these hardships? Well, for the Christian, these hardships are not worthless or wasted. They're redemptive. As that one passage that Mike read says, that I think that's the one you read. No, uh, Gail, did you read the one, nothing will separate us from the love of God, all these things? Nothing will, uh, even though we're counted as sheep to the slaughter, we are secure in God's love. And he, 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 we're his people and nobody will take us away from him. And so we have to have a comfort in the relationship and a comfort knowing that our trials are not in vain in the Lord. And there's something else that I'm convinced of, more so the older I get and the more I study the Bible and the more I watch history unfold. I'm convinced that this life is a lot shorter than we think it is. Is it not? And these are momentary afflictions that are not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory to be revealed. And I'm absolutely certain, beyond any doubt, that when we get in eternity, and we'll look back at what we thought was so bad, and we'll think, what were we thinking about? I, can't, I couldn't find that one. I was just, you know the downside of always using a computer Bible? Because I can't find anything in my paper one anymore. I mean, it's so easy. You just type in your search. What does it say? Boom, there it is. I do it all the time, just for efficiency. Yeah, carry a little computer one with. And then plus I need more, wide margins just aren't enough. I need more space for my notes than what you get in a wide margin Bible. But there's a passage, I'll just tell you the story. And this was very encouraging to me at one of the worst moments in my life. Um, Paul, I was looking up what Paul did when he was under afflictions. And there's this one event, maybe somebody here will know where it is. It was in Acts. He went into a city and preached, and they took him out and stoned him. And they left him there for dead. And turns out he wasn't dead. He got up, and the very next thing he did immediately was went to the next city and started preaching again. They couldn't stop this man from preaching the gospel. They stone him, he gets up and preaches in the next city. Now you wonder why he said to the Corinth, I came to you in much fear and trembling. Everywhere he went, they were trying to kill him. Let's go to verse 5. In beatings, somebody, whoever's first to find that incident gets a gold star. Is that you, Jessica? Did you find it? I thought it was. Well, I, couldn't, I couldn't find it. Okay, give her to Mike and she can read it. Thank you, Jessica. Acts 14. It's Acts 14, 19. 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Okay. What about verse 21? Did you read that too? Um, 
When they had preached the gospel to that city yep. and had many, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Okay, so he was stoned, thought he was dead, got up, went to the next city, preached the gospel. So I got inspiration from that one time because when we had a serious, serious thing going on, well, everything was serious. The, the church was basically broke and we couldn't afford to stay in the building. We had to put up for sale. My daughter was in the hospital, didn't know she was going to live or die for a while there. Ended up with two surgeries, six weeks in the hospital. Church was shrunk down to 65 people, couldn't pay the, couldn't pay the salaries, couldn't take care of the building. Everything was bad, really, really bad. And so I was thinking, i got to get up in front of the congregation and say something. What am I going to tell them? I can't think of any good news except for the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) And I got inspiration from Paul, and particularly that incident that Jessica read to us. And I said, well, what Paul did when when he got beat up was he just go preach the gospel. So the way I'm going to fight back, I believe Satan has been beating me up with all kinds of ways. And so the way I'm going to fight back is preach the gospel. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if we'll ever pay our bills. I don't know what will happen to our daughter. But I promise you I'll preach the gospel. And that was a great inspiration that I got from Paul was, you know, just get up and preach the gospel. Because why is all these attacks against him? Because Satan hates the gospel. Because it's the only way his, his, his kingdom is going to be plundered. So in beatings, you know, by the way, I had that as a cross-reference. I knew I just read this the other day, Acts 14, 19 to 21. In beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. These difficulties and hardships related to the nature of the ministry and the need to do the tent making. <coughs> um, well, let's, let's see. Uh, Patrick, could you read Acts 17, 5 through 9? That was in Thessalonica. And while he's looking for that, Brian Beers, could you look up Jeremiah 37, 15, and 16? It's another guy that went through about the same kind of stuff Paul did. Jeremiah 37, 15, and 16. And then Norma, uh, Jeremiah 38, and verse 6. Okay. 17, 5 through 9? Yes. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, so they'd been accused of turning the world upside down, offending Caesar by saying Jesus <coughs> was king. And that's, this is after Jesus ascended to heaven. So they're worried about another king who's sitting in heaven? But they're just trying to stir up troubles. Okay. Uh, the passage is in Jeremiah. Brian? Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison 
in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had, had remained there many days. So they, they beat Jeremiah and throw him into prison, Jeremiah 37, 15, and 16. And then Jeremiah 38, 6. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. They took Jeremiah, who was God's prophet, speaking for God. This was the Jewish people, because they were in rebellion, and they stick him into a cistern to sink down in the mud and suffocate to death. Anybody know what happened to him? An Ethiopian came along and pulled him out. Isn't that amazing? So God's own people take the prophet of God, throw him in a cistern to sink down into mud. He's going down, down, down. He's going to suffocate in the mud. And an Ethiopian had to pull him out because there were no righteous in Israel to stand up for the man of God who spoke for God. Jeremiah's life story, that'd make an interesting book. Maybe Tim LaHaye would want to write that one. He's writing books now on uh, the lives of the gospel writers. John and, John and Mark are out already. He sent, he sent me both of them because we were talking out in Los Angeles, and so he sent me his two books. And so Jesse, I gave one to Jesse to read. But, you know, somebody was a – I can't even conceive of fiction because I, I, I just can't write that way. But not that I would probably try. But um, – Somebody could write a somewhat fictional but accurate account of Jeremiah's life, and it would be very, very interesting. Maybe somebody will hear me and get the idea. If you're a good writer, think about Jeremiah. Yes, go ahead. John MacArthur sets a really great example for all of us when he's on these interviews with Larry King because he doesn't add any unneeded offense to the gospel. He always points to the Bible. He says, this is what, this is what the Bible says. In answer to those questions, it's always, this is what the Bible says. And no need, unneeded offense, just the offense yeah. of the gospel. Yeah, I, that's what I said the other day, too. I've had a couple of emails like this from people that are really upset. And I said, we don't make this up. And I got a phone, one was a phone call. There was a person who called me that was just totally livid about Christianity and who had grown up in a Christian home. But anyhow, I, I said, we don't make this up. I, if... If the Bible said that there's no hell, I would be happy to not preach on hell because I wouldn't have to offend people. But I I didn't make it up. These ideas didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of people reading the Bible. And that's why we believe it. Yes, uh, Dick. This is kind of non-business, but you got about two minutes and you wanted to mention Israel, a trip in the West Coast. Oh, I, I have to get a hold of that guy. Um, the guy th- that brought me out to the West Coast to preach has a deal where they they come and help people have trips to Israel and stuff. So think about if anybody would be interested in that. Uh, it's a very worthwhile. If you, if you, had, if you had, only one time wanted to spend a bunch of money on a trip, I, I'd say that would be should take first priority. <laughs> yes. You're going? Oh, you are going to do it. All right, I guess we don't need any help then. 
See, I don't know what goes on. If anybody wants to know what's going on, don't call me. <laughs> All I know is what I'm going to preach on Sunday and what book I'm writing on. <laughs> Other than that, I know nothing. I'm shelves, nothing. Okay, um, this morning we're back in Luke again, Luke chapter 10, and help us with the chairs and enjoy a wonderful time of fellowship.